What is up, Solo Cups? My name is John Solo. This is the Messed Up Origins podcast, and today we're doing something a little unorthodox. If you've been a Solo Cup for a while, then you may have already heard me cover the origins of Snow White twice. The first time, back in 2017, I focused exclusively on the Grimm Brothers rendition, and the second time was a much more thorough breakdown of the fairy tale's history and the way it's evolved across time and from country to country. But this week, we're going to take that story's evolution into the 20th century, right past the 1937 Disney classic to a graphic novel written and released by Neil Gaiman in 1995 called Snow Glass Apples. Be warned, this is an extremely sinister take on the familiar fairy tale where the perspective is shifted from the beloved Snow White to the alleged antagonist, the evil queen whom we love to hate. And while I don't want to spoil anything for you, an entirely new side of the story is revealed that completely turns it on its head. I always say that our show changes the way you see these classic fairy tales forever, but this episode might just take the cake. I'm talking dark magic, murder, necrophilia, and then some stuff that wasn't in the original story. See what I did there? Chapter one, a taste of things to come. So with this being our third episode about Snow White, I'm pretty sure we're past the point where I need to completely review the original story or Disney's version. Instead, I'm just gonna make the bold assumption that you have at least a general idea of how the plot unfolds. That being said, when I draw comparisons between Gaiman's work and the others, I'll make sure to be descriptive enough that if you haven't heard or seen the originals in a long time, you won't be completely lost. Now, a setup as old as time, but with a twist. When the story opens, the narrator, the evil queen, who I'm gonna name Regina in honor of the character character in Once Upon a Time gives us the typical background information you'd expect. A princess is born, her mother dies, and her father is left to remarry. Only this time, she specifically says the princess, Snow White, killed her mother during childbirth. Mind you, it didn't say that she died during childbirth, but that she was killed. Then we're told the story of the evil queen's romance with the king, from her perspective, which doesn't unfold how you'd expect. In most of these fairy tales, when a stepmother is introduced, she's a manipulative, scheming hag who's after the man's riches or social status. But in this one, the king quite literally sweeps a young maiden off her feet, asks your place or mine, then they ride off to Pleasure Town. It must have been a nice trip, too, because not long after it, the king marries Regina, she she becomes queen and moves into the castle when Snow White's at the tender age of five. The young queen notices some weird behavior from her stepdaughter right off the bat though. For example, she looks nothing like her mother whose portrait hangs over the mantelpiece and she never sees her eat any food. As you'd expect, the strangeness is starting to creep Regina out after a while and the tension between them culminates into a terrifying interaction late one night. Snow White enters the queen's chambers and says her only line in the entire book, I'm hungry. Then the queen gives her a piece of dried apple she had hanging above her bed. Because apparently that's something people used to do? I don't know. I'm glad that refrigerators were invented. Well, Snow White likes the fruit, and for the first time ever, the queen isn't totally freaked out by her. But when she tries to affectionately stroke her cheek, the little bitch bites her on the hand. Naturally, the queen pulls back, but after it settles in what just happened, she freezes with fear. Meanwhile, Snow White drinks her blood without even breaking eye contact. An interesting detail I noticed here is that the queen refers to the spot she bit as her Mount of Venus, so I was curious what the meaning behind that was. Turns out, according to this palm reading site I found, the mount is a representation of home, love, romance, sensuality, and passion. Now, I'm not going to explicitly say whether or not I think palm reading is a crock of sh though you can probably assume my stance on it. However, I do think it was a conscious decision by Gaiman to make this the bite site, because as you'll see by the end of the book, what the Mount of Venus represents is exactly exactly what Snow White drains from Regina's 
life. Anyway, as soon as Snow White leaves, the fresh wound starts to close, scab, and heal, showing that it's no normal bite. And the queen, who was feeling frozen, owned, and dominated, started to barricade her doors and windows at night and rarely left her room out of fear. Then the king starts showing abnormal behavior. He's getting weaker by the day, he's paler than ever, and he has no desire whatsoever to go to Pleasure Town with the queen. Well, sure enough, the king continues to waste away <laughs> until he's nothing but a shell of his former self, then he dies, and the freshly widowed queen notices that his body is covered in tiny little scars like the one she has on her hand. And I mean covered everywhere. Think for a moment about what that implies, then try to get the image out of your head. By the way, Snow White's like five years old at this point. Now, after the king died, the 16-year-old queen was the lone ruler, and because she knew that Snow White was responsible for his death, she had to punish her. This is where the story starts to get familiar again. But what's fascinating is at this point, we've gained enough perspective to see these familiar events in a totally new light. Just like in the Disney movie and multiple renditions all around the world, the queen orders some huntsmen to take Snow White deep into the woods, cut out her heart, and bring it back to her. See, it didn't matter how dramatic I said it or the fact that Snow White is only five years old at this point, you know she's a patricidal vampire lunatic, so you're not appalled about the idea of her murder. And it's a good thing too, because in this version it actually happens and it's not pretty. Now in a clever callback to the original tale, the queen makes a point to deny the rumors, or in other words, the stories that you and I are familiar with, that she was going to eat the girl's heart or that the huntsman let her go and swapped out a boar's heart instead. She said both rumors are impossible because she hung the heart above her bed, and that she knows it was Snow White's because an animal's heart would not have continued to be. And if that's not the most metal thing you've ever heard a queen say, I don't know what queens are hanging out with, but I'm gonna avoid them. Chapter two, apples. So now we're jumping ahead a bit to springtime a few years later. Apparently when the snow melts, the kingdom throws an event called the Spring Fair, where the forest dwellers mingle with the village residents. They trade various goods, people put on shows, it's a pretty good time. And that's despite the fact that forest folk are all shysty weirdos with various deformities like hunchbacks and crab claws. No disrespect to any forest people watching, of course, I'm sure that your webbed feet are gorgeous. Now over the next five years, the queen says she ruled with wisdom and her citizens loved her, a fact that we can't verify, but it did have me wondering how good of a ruler the queen in the classic story was and what happened to her kingdom after she died. Did the princes just absorb it after he married Snow White? It must have, right? Doesn't matter. The point is, things were functioning decent enough for those five years, but with every spring fair, less forest folk were present, and because the fair was such a key source of income for the villagers, many of them were starving. As a result, the queen had no choice but to use her gift of sight, and this might be my favorite callback to the original tale. Instead of having a magic mirror that basically functions as an enchanted Alexa, she can look into things like mirrors and bowls of ink and have a kind of psychic vision that answers whatever question she has. Hey Siri, who's the fairest one of all? Snow White? Is that you? No. Now what she sees when she looks in the mirror this time, I can't really show you much of, but to put it simply, Snow White is very much alive and picking off the forest folk one by one. That is, after she has sex with them and some kind of gross black ink spills out of her fun tunnel. As you'd expect, Regina is horrified at this revelation, but she's also a boss-ass bitch who's not gonna let her citizens fall victim to this crazy sex vampire. So she starts devising a plan, and it's one that you're probably familiar with. She uses dark magic to poison some apples, and a really 
really cool detail Gaiman added to this was that she basically turned her blood into poison before injecting it into the apple, making it the perfect bait for a vampire. Then she puts on a baggy cloak that covers her face, finds Snow White's lair deep in the forest, and waits for the dwarves to leave so she has an opportune moment to strike. She gets Snow White to come to the entrance of her cave and does the whole I'm an old peddler lady wanna buy my ribbons act, but Snow White doesn't just let her in like we're used to. No, instead, she attacks the queen, who shrieks like an old lady, then runs away as fast as she can. And with her gray cloak blending in with the landscape, Snow White loses sight of her and she escapes. And while we don't get to learn exactly how it goes down because Regina wasn't there, we know that Snow White fell victim to the apple's poison because by the time the queen got back to her chambers, the heart above her bed had stopped beating. Chapter three, revenge. Now we jump ahead six months to the next spring fair, which isn't restored to its former glory just yet, but had improved considerably. Regina also mentions seeing Snow White's former roommates there buying glass and crystals from the villagers, which they were no doubt using to make her coffin. Jumping ahead again, this time two years into the future, here's where the story reaches peak kinkiness. To put it simply, Regina's kingdom is visited by a prince who has a thing for women just a bit past their expiration date, and Regina learns this the hard way or maybe I should say soft way. Because when she tries making a move on the prince, things don't exactly work out. Apparently her impression of a corpse was just abysmal. And you can probably see where this is going. The prince leaves Regina's kingdom the next morning and discovers the body of Snow White deep in the forest and somehow convinces the dwarves to let him take her. We don't know if he bought her or if the dwarves were just intimidated by the sight of his armed guard, but either way, the prince was thrilled about finding his perfect woman. But here's where things start to go south for Regina. Apparently the prince's thrusting knocked a piece of apple out of Snow White's throat and the queen woke up to the monster's once still heart pumping fresh blood all over her face. And as if that isn't terrifying enough, only a few moments later, the prince's armed guards storm into her bedroom, take her captive while the prince spits in her face, a bit excessive if you ask me, then Snow White enters. Without saying a word, she slices open her chest and places the heart inside after giving it a lick for good measure, of course, then the queen receives her punishment. Remember how in the grim version of the story, the queen was forced to put on red hot iron slippers and dance until she was dead? Well, the way she's treated in this one is a little different, but no less humiliating. After being kept in a stone cell for months on end, Snow White's wedding day had finally come. And to celebrate the occasion, Regina was dragged out of her cell, stripped naked, had all of her hair cut off, then was lathered in goose grease. They march her through town square past hordes of people laughing and shouting slurs, and the last thing Regina sees before being shoved into a massive kiln is a snowflake landing on the new queen's ice-cold cheek. Then the fire is started. Regina lies in the center of the kiln while the flames grow in size and intensity. The room is getting hotter, smokier, making it harder and harder for her to breathe, but she refuses to cry out in pain or discomfort. Instead, she focuses on other matters, and the last line of the story reads, I shall instead think of the snowflake on her cheek. I think of her hair as black as coal, her lips redder than blood, her skin snow white. And that, Solo Cups, was the true story that inspired the classic fairy tale that we all know and love at least according to the queen. I don't think Gaiman expects us to take her word at face value, meaning the real truth lies somewhere between his version and the classic story. So I'm curious about what that is. Chapter four. Beautiful, yet terrifying. 
Now, if you're anything like me, you had one or maybe both of these thoughts after finishing Snow Glass Apples. Wow, what an incredibly dark and original interpretation of a story we've all heard a thousand times. And or, how the hell does someone think of this? Well, I'm happy to report that thanks to an interview Gaiman did with AllAboutRomance.com, we have an answer to that question. And it's one that I think longtime fans of Messed Up Origins will appreciate. Gaiman said that one day while reading from the Penguin Book of English Folktales, a collection of over 100 Gaelic legends, he stumbled upon a retelling of Snow White that went into more detail about her aging and going through sexual maturity while under the sleeping spell. I actually ordered the book myself so I could read a bit of it to you and give you some insight on what he's talking about, but sadly, it's not gonna be here for another week, so we're just gonna have to wait and talk about it in a dedicated video. The point is, though, that while reading the far more messed up version of the story he was familiar with, he was inspired to write his own adaptation with the expressed purpose of answering two questions he still had about the tale. One, what kind of prince he's a corpse in a glass coffin and says, I'm in love, I've gotta have that. And two, what kind of young lady can you put in a coffin with skin as white as snow, lips as red as blood, and hair as black as coal for a couple of years who isn't going to die? The answers? Well, a necrophiliac and a vampire, of course. Do I still get points if I put Rudy Giuliani and Billie Eilish? Yes. Anyway, Gaiman said that when he made that connection, the whole story was right there in front of him and he was very eager to write it. But a story is obviously more than just words, right? Especially one like this. That's why he partnered up with Colleen Duran, an artist whose work you may recognize from Sandman, a comic series also written by Gaiman, and even some Marvel comics to create the incredible art that makes up the novel. Duran said that she was inspired by the work of artist Harry Clark, who was known for his ornate stained glass pieces featuring big-eyed characters that's believed to have had an influence over character design in manga. And when you look at the art in Snow Glass Apples, that stained glass style is very apparent. Though I have to say, if I saw a church with windows that look like this, I'd probably stay beyond a 50 mile radius to avoid being sacrificed to Cthulhu. Another deliberate style choice that Duran made was to avoid the panel borders that you typically see in comics. Being that the story is told through the queen's memories and imagination, she wanted it to have a free-flowing sensibility. And in my opinion, she totally nailed it. Even if there were no text at all, you could easily figure out how things unfold chronologically and the fact that it's all happening in a flashback. Fortunately, the words are there, and they, in partnership with Duran's art, tell a beautiful and terrifying story that reminds us to always question what we know, because maybe, just maybe, we don't have all the facts. Thank you all for tuning in to the Messed Up Origins podcast. We're posting episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So don't forget to sacrifice the five-star and follow buttons to the algorithm gods to make sure they bless your feed with more mythological and folklore content. If you have any thoughts on this episode you'd like to share, like if you really enjoyed it or are dying to correct my pronunciation of something, hit me up under the Messed Up Origins handles on Twitter and Instagram. And to those who are craving more Messed Up Origins, feel free to check out other episodes episodes of the podcast or look up my YouTube channel called John Solo to experience the original episodes complete with visual aids and custom made artwork. Until next time, Solo fam, my name is John Solo and don't forget, John shot first. <laughs>